Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stern. All right. Well, it is almost game time in the NBA. We have approximately two weeks until we start gameplay. Preseason starts next week. Based on our most recent podcast, we've talked a lot about the transactions, but I really want to get to the most recent one that happened. Quinn Cook signed back with the Lakers. How do you think that feels for Quinn? <laughs> Quinn Cook back with the Lakers. I'm just kidding. Honestly, Let's get to the Russ and Wall trade. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just get to the Russ That's a good one. Trade. I like that. I like that. But, um, yeah, no, the Russ Wall trade, I, I really want to say that I didn't see it coming, but you mentioned it, I think, on the very first podcast that you thought that it was possible that someone like a Russell Westbrook maybe moved, maybe even for someone like John Wall, and here we are. So, um I think honestly, it's it's a pretty good deal for both of them, given that you're basically swapping two guys who have similar playing styles. It's not going to necessarily make either of your teams worse. It can only make it better. You know that Russell Westbrook and James Harden aren't a good fit together. They're both requesting to be traded. The Rockets are able to get a first round pick out of this as well. And they get another player in John Wall who potentially can contribute. He seems like he's ready. He's been running. He looks quick. He looks athletic. And then you have Russell Westbrook going to the Wizards. I think that that's basically just going to be their last-ditch attempt to try to hope and keep Bradley Beal around because they're capped out. They don't really have another way to acquire a star. So doing this was really the only way that they could realistically pair Beal with another all-star and get rid of John Wall in, in the process. So I think for both teams, it works out. I think for both teams, it works out as well. I do think that I brought this up on the first podcast, and – for Houston, they get a little bit of their draft capital back. Wall does look pretty explosive in his like early videos, but when those guys play in the Drew League or play recreationally, they're not really playing actual defense. So it'll be interesting when he sees uh, Steven Adams or a big center that's clogging the lane that he has to run and drive into and how he deals with that com uh, contact. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens with Beal and with Russ. I think they're both pretty ball dominant guards. So, yeah, I agree. I think that it's going to be honestly a similar situation for Beal because I think Beal is the best when he has the ball in his hands. I think he wants to be the lead guard. And I think that's probably why it didn't work out with wall. It's probably going to be a similar situation with Westbrook, but you know, you basically put them together and hope for the best. You shake it up, you give it a chance and you can say if Beal leaves, you gave it your best shot. I honestly think that Wall might be a slightly better fit for Harden than Westbrook, just because I know that Wall is a little bit more willing to pass the ball than Westbrook is. He's willing to take the backseat a little bit on offense, and that allows Harden to do what he wants to do and play his isolation ball. I think Russell Westbrook is the kind of guy that he wants to be attacking the basket at all times in the line drive, and he looks for shooters as his second option. His first option, though, is always attack the basket. And when you do that, you basically eliminate Harden's game. So I think that for both teams, like I said, it's, it's basically a net even. Yeah, I. the interesting thing for me is for each of these storylines, I'm curious to know if it was a Russell once out or James wants him out versus a Beal wants him out versus John wants him out or wants to be out. And I think for Houston, it at first to me seemed like James Harden wanted him out more. But after some recent things that I've seen, I think Russell wanted to be out of Houston more than James wanted him out. Similarly with Wall, I don't think Beal really wanted him to leave, but I think John Wall did want to leave. So first start for both. We'll see how it impacts both teams. Uh, which one of the two do you think will be a more successful pairing? Ooh, well, I got to give the Rockets the benefit of the doubt on this deal just because the Rockets were able to also get a first-round pick out of this. So worst-case scenario, they did acquire an asset even if it doesn't work out. And I do think that the styles of James Harden and John Wall may mesh a little bit better because Wall is willing to be the secondary scorer. He's never really, if you look at his career, been a guy who has thrived being the first option. He's always been primarily a pass-first point guard. 
And I think Russell Westbrook playing with, with Bradley Beal is going to bring some toughness, but I think it's going to make it so that their ball movement is going to be diminished. And I think it's going to also result in a statistical hit for Bradley Beal across the board. I don't think we're going to see Bradley Beal averaging 30 points a game with Russell Westbrook over there. I know that Russell Westbrook is a very ball dominant guy. And we know that Russell Westbrook really can't play off the ball because no one respects him to hit a shot from outside. So if you're, an, if you're a defensive team, you're going to leave Russell Westbrook open every single time on the perimeter. And you got a guy like Bradley Beal and uh, Russell Westbrook, and he's your floor spacer. You're obviously going to double team Bradley Beal. So I, I, I see the offense being a little tougher for the Wizards. Yeah, when I looked at this, I, similar to you, thought that the Houston Rockets uh, side of it would be more successful. But again, after some recent things that I saw, I don't even know if they're going to play together. I think Harden might be still traded before the start of the season. So I see Russell and Beal having a better chance of playing together, although I do see Beal getting traded at the deadline to potentially a Heat team or even a 76ers or a package of players and letting Russ run the show up in Washington. Uh, but overall, I think Harden still may be out of that situation, and it'll turn into the wall boogie, uh, broken man Kentucky team. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. I think, honestly, the thing is, you have some interesting mindsets that you're trying to pair together here. I think that James Harden definitely wants out of Houston, but the thing is, it's hard for Houston to get equal value back for him. A team that's going to trade for Harden is probably going to do this because they intend to win a championship. So they don't want to give you back something so great in value that they now don't have what it takes to compete. It's really hard for Houston to get back fair return for James Harden. So as much as he may want out, at least for the time being, I find it hard for him to be moved for a, team, uh, to, for a trade that would give Houston equitable return back. The other aspect of it is, I think that Russell Westbrook and James Harden just have completely different mindsets. I think that Russell Westbrook is a guy that he's full basketball all the time when he's on the court. He's completely business. He is 100% about going all in maximum effort for basketball. James Harden, on the other hand, great scorer, but I can tell you as someone who lives in Miami, who sees him around here, he loves to party. He loves to have a good time. And although he's a great basketball player, I don't think that's what's first and foremost on his mind all the time. James Harden literally just missed the first day of training camp because of COVID-related reasons, because you know that you have to do that self-quarantine when you're coming back. And obviously he was traveling because he was partying. He was just seen in a video with Lil Baby giving him, giving Lil Baby $100,000 in cash at his birthday at a strip club. And he's known for this. Like rappers rap about how much money James Harden spends in strip clubs. So not saying that like, you know, the guy's not entitled to do what he wants with his money. But I can see how a guy like Russell Westbrook, who's like, in the offseason, we need to be practicing, we need to be getting better. And then James Harden's like, dude, no, chill. Like, we need to pop some champagne and we can practice later during the season. I, I can see why it didn't work. Yeah. And so on that note, I think we can go to our first segment ever on Court of Opinion, which is appropriately titled, What's the Verdict? In this segment, we're going to... I'm going to give you a rundown of different uh, story points from the league that happened over the last week, and then you're going to prove their case as to why the person is either innocent or guilty. All right, let's do so, it. So, starting off, Russell Westbrook was the problem in Houston. Innocent or guilty? Innocent. I think Russell Westbrook is not a stylistic fit for James Harden in terms of their skill sets. But I don't think he was the problem per se, because I know that Russell Westbrook is an ultimate professional and say what you want about him, but the guy puts in maximum effort. He would do whatever it took to try to win a basketball game. So I'm sure if he saw an equal commitment from James Harden to do the same, they could have made it work. And I know that it can happen because I've seen, for example, when LeBron James and Dwayne Wade were on that first heat team together, their styles didn't exactly complement one another either. They had a lot of overlap as well but they both put in maximum effort. And instead of saying, hey, this doesn't work and leaving the following season, they worked hard all off season, they figured it out and they found a way to win. And I think that Russell Westbrook would have been willing to do that. I just don't think that James was. Yeah, uh, I would also say he was innocent. Um, I think 
Russell Westbrook will win a championship before James Harden does. If that ever happens. But I agree. Yes. I would pick him to win one before James. Yeah. So next question. James Harden missed practice because of COVID guidelines. Innocent or guilty? Guilty. That's a fact. He did miss practice because of COVID guidelines, but it's not because he's having symptoms or because he's sick. It's because he's doing the James Harden. He is being the baller that he is in the offseason. He is known. I mean, some offseasons he can be seen with a Kardashian. Other offseasons he might be with Lil Baby. Who now knows? he's with Jordan Woods, the Khloe Kardashian cheating exactly. sandal. It yeah. almost seems like he wants to be in the spotlight, but not necessarily always for basketball. And I mean, that's his prerogative, I guess, but definitely guilty because if he had prioritized winning this season, he could have partied, you know, he could have stopped partying two weeks early and been ready for practice. But he's like, no, I got to get every single day. This is a shorter off season. I can't pop as much champagne. I need every day. <laughs> yeah, I... I think people from Russell Westbrook's camp just are retweeting this video that you mentioned of James Harden being a little baby, popping bottles at a strip club, giving him a hundred thousand dollars and some honey buns. And yep. it's like, oh, and some honey this buns. is, this is the exact reason why we do not, we didn't want to be in Houston. He yep. clearly has different priorities. Russell Westbrook the next day after James Harden is probably still up with the after party with more strippers. Russell Westbrook was at practice. For sure. And he's like, oh, great. Great leader for this team, right? Yeah, but, he um... was at practice, dapping up <laughs> his new teammates, just ready to go. I don't, you know what? I don't think Russell Westbrook has drank champagne in his life. I think Russell Westbrook is waiting <laughs> to drink champagne until he's he like, wins the championship. I don't deserve to have it until yeah. I win. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> at his wedding, his I wife agree. was like, honey, let's have some champagne. He was like, nah. I'm not drinking champagne until I'm in that locker room. Yeah. I am not having a champagne shower until I'm in a championship <laughs> locker room. I think Russell Westbrook, For if sure. he wins the Eastern Conference Finals, he's going to be the first player to not wear the Eastern Conference gear. He's going to be like, nope, <laughs> nope, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the championship. I cannot put on a single T-shirt. So he he is built that way. But yeah. on a side note, or, or uh, on a on an insider note, I actually know that James Harden is so about that life that even here in Miami, just across from where I live, I know that he rented out a bar right across from where he lived for a private event that had a bunch of strippers. And apparently the price tag was like for 60K a night, which is basically a drop in the bucket for him. But it's just funny that like, this was at the very, very start of, uh, of COVID. And the first thing he thinks to do, like COVID starts first thing, let me go down to Miami and rent out a bar, strippers. <laughs> James Harden, man. Oh, God. All right. What's the verdict? JJ Reddick doesn't like playing for Stan Van Gundy. So funny clip that's been going around. We'll let everybody take a listen. Um, defensively, you know, we'll, I think we'll be one of the one of the better defensive teams uh, for the simple fact that we'll have uh, we'll have great discipline. Uh, we'll have great rules. Um, you know, we'll, we'll drill shit out of everything. Uh, and, um, you can tell I'm super excited about it. You know, can't wait for training camp. You know, I had like, seriously, I, how did I, how did I end up with this in year 15? All right. What'd you, uh, what'd you think? So I think that I'm going to have to say guilty, obviously, it's kind of like a love-hate relationship, I'm sure. I'm sure that like JJ Reddick probably loves Stan as a guy. You know that they have a long relationship going all the way back to when JJ Reddick played for him in Orlando. So I'm sure he has a good relationship with him as a human being. But we all know that Stan Van Gundy does have a reputation around the league for as a coach being a bit of a stickler. He may not necessarily be JJ Reddick's favorite kind of coach because in reality, J.J. Reddick's playing style doesn't really correlate with Stan Van Gundy's coaching style. J.J. Reddick likes to play in a free-flowing offense, carefree, shoot the ball, high-scoring, fast-paced team. Stan Van Gundy is all about 
defense, defense, your assignments, defense, defense, your assignments, which, I mean, J.J. Redick has never been a great defender, and he's, he's never going to be because of his physical limitations, especially at this point in his career. So I'm sure that that um, extra harping on defense and the less emphasis on offense probably is in J.J. Redick's favorite style of basketball. Yeah, I think I think he's also guilty in, in this sense. But to me, that just screams out that Brett Brown, Doc Rivers, Alvin Gentry, all of the most recent J.J. Redick coaches all don't care about conditioning. And J.J. Redick's just been able to chill with these coaches because now he's like, well, when I was a rookie, this put me in the shape. But now in year 15, J.J. Redick arguably looks like he's in the best shape of his life. And he's still getting into this conditioned framework from Stan, uh, which I think is rich coming from Stan. However, <laughs> when you look at that whole team, it is full of younger talent. And I know that Stan has a history of being able to develop younger teams. And so for Zion, after coming in with all of these highly touted prospects and potential for him, it's going to be great because potentially the conditioning is going to go a long way for him. And after Zion having an injury... Yeah, and after having an injury plague season, hopefully this whips him into shape a little bit and gets away from some of those injuries and allows him to be the dynamic player that we saw sparks of or like pieces of last year. For Lonzo, for Brandon Ingram, hopefully they put on some weight this offseason as well as potentially Josh Hart. And with the conditioning, again, they'll just be better, younger players. I think the Pelicans will be an exciting team to watch and hopefully stand. Hopefully Stan gets the right team for him because when he was in Detroit, even though he had personnel authority, he still had older players and older vets with Drummond, with Blake Griffin, and some of the other guys that they had there. So I think this is a better fit for Stan as well as the team. I think it's a better coach fit than Alvin Gentry. So it'll be exciting to watch. I agree. Michael Porter Jr. should be doing less tweeting, showing more on the court. Innocent or guilty? Whew. Honestly, I'm a very big Michael Porter Jr. fan, but I've got to say guilty here. Because as talented as I think that Michael Porter Jr. is, and I think the world of him, I really do think that if he had never gotten his back injured, he probably would have been a lock to be a top three pick in his draft. He really is that talented. And I think you saw a taste last season of what he can do when he's given free reign. I remember when Jeremy Grant went down and they needed to insert him into the starting lineup, he thrived. He averaged over 20 points and 10 rebounds a game while he was in the starting lineup on efficient shooting. This is a guy who is six foot 10 with plus athleticism, finishes with authority above the basket, has a really quick release for a big guy, great stroke from outside. Honestly, the guy is supremely talented. He is a guy that I think has all the tools to be a perennial all-star, potentially even a first-teamer, if he can put it all together. But the thing is, regardless of all that, you've got to show it first. You can't be out here talking the talk before you've proved it. Although he played great for that stretch, it was only about a two-week span. In reality, he didn't play great in the playoffs. He had issues where he came out in post-game and threw his coach and teammates under the bus in a post-conference complaining about how he's not getting a big enough role. I mean, these are things that you just don't do as a professional. It points to the maturity level that he has, unfortunately. And I think that if he's ever going to hit his full potential, he's going to have to commit to talking less and focusing on action and putting in the work on the court because all this chatter just brings distractions and creates unnecessary pressure. So I think ultimately he needs to buckle down and put in the work first before he talks the talk. But I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think that ultimately Michael Porter Jr. will wind up elsewhere. I don't think that um, long-term he's going to fit for the Nuggets because I, I can see that the Nuggets are fully committed to the pairing of Jokic and Murray. They've already given them both extremely lucrative contracts. Those guys aren't going anywhere. Michael Porter Jr. has it in his mind. He wants to be the number one guy. He doesn't want to be third fiddle. And you could almost see it in the playoffs. You could see this kind of weird tension where in important situations, Jamal Murray was kind of like, I could pass it to Porter. He's open, but I don't want to. 
I'm going to do that. I want to be that guy. And you can just feel it. Like the chemistry is not there. And I think that ultimately he's going to wind up going somewhere else and potentially being an all-star elsewhere. Yeah, I agree with all those things. I also think he's guilty. Um, he's 22 years old. He came into the league after playing for his dad for half a season at Mizzou. He hasn't done enough to your point. He hasn't shown that he is the guy. And I don't know how you can come out and bash the team and bash the coach. Maybe it's not bashing, but just the way that he phrased everything. It's subliminally bashing. You can't do that until you've proven yourself. And Mike Malone, I don't think, is a pushover in terms of, like, his coaching style. So I think if the Nuggets come out the gate well and they're doing well without Michael Porter Jr. showing any sort of statistical dominance, then they could trade him to a, I don't know, New York Knicks who just need some sort of firepower or that type of <laughs> If he goes to the player. Knicks, he will never, ever become what I said. I take but, back everything I said <laughs> if he goes to the Knicks. His career will be over in three seasons if he goes to the Knicks. I, and that's, yeah, I completely agree. He would become an NBA journeyman if he went to the Knicks. So Exactly. He will be the next James Johnson if he goes to the Knicks. Yeah. Hopefully he can keep it in-house and show everything out on the court and internalize that a bit more and potentially speak about those transgressions with the coach. But until he does that, uh, it, to your point, does show a lack of maturity, and I think that immaturity could lead him to becoming a journeyman if he doesn't uh, channel that elsewhere. So that's the end of our segment. We'll continue to have more segments throughout the rest of the shows, but wanted to get into some award predictions from for the season. So in terms of all of the different awards, uh, you have MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, Most Improved Player, Sixth Man, and Coach of the Year. So I want to go through each of those of who you think some of the front runners are, as well as some of the dark horses. So in terms of MVP, who do you have as the front runners for MVP going into next season? All right. So I guess for me, I probably got to give it to three guys because we have to realize too, the MVP is going to be a combination of things. It always is. Number one, it's a combination of, statistical dominance by the player, by the individual. It is a combination of that with the success of your team's record and the storyline that you as an individual are presenting. We've seen, for example, players who are worthy that check off two of the boxes, not win because another player had a better narrative. So that can happen. But um, I think that this season, my number one preseason pick, if he can return at even 90% of what he was, is Kevin Durant. For MVP. I really do think he's going to get it. It'd be a great narrative. The guy tears his Achilles, giving it his all for the Warriors in the playoffs. Can't play for a whole year. Comes back with Steve Nash, who's going to have an Alice Steve Kerr performance as a first year head coach. And he averages something upwards of 27 points a game and 10 rebounds, which he's, he's done handily throughout his career. So I have no doubt that he can do it again. He has a very, very talented supporting cast. He's got a good coaching staff out there. I think he has everything in place to put up an MVP season with an MVP storyline and a good record. So I think that he'll probably win it if he's healthy. And um, I think that it's a similar situation for Stephen Curry. He's got a similar storyline going on. You've got that injury thing coming back after not playing for a while. A guy with MVP-level talent. I'm sure that he's going to have to pick up the offensive load a lot too because Klay Thompson is no longer going to be playing this season. And we know that his replacements are stepped down offensively. So I, I expect Curry, if he's healthy, to have a big offensive year. So I think that um, the only thing is, I don't know if that Curry's team success is going to be quite as good as Durant's. But um, I think that he's a good pick. And then obviously Luka Doncic is my third because he's probably going to average close to a triple-double again. He hasn't won it yet. And I would assume that the Mavericks are going to be even better next season record-wise. So um, I think that he is going to have maybe the strongest individual statistical case to win the award. So he'd probably have to be my third pick. Yeah, I had two out of three of yours. Uh, I think Durant does have a chance there. We'll see how that Kyrie pairing goes. But 
Uh, I also had Stefan Luca for similar reasons. If Luca is able to win the scoring title next year, which I think he will, and also bring the very close triple-double numbers up to a triple-double to join Oscar and Russ, I think he wins it just from a narrative standpoint. Somebody who's been in league only for three seasons, kind of had his breakout season last year, averaging 28 points, getting that up seven points from the prior season. Porzingis is not going to be in there for the first couple of games. So not having your floor mate to go to battle with you. And overall, that team depth-wise, I don't think is as deep as some other teams. So if he really is carrying that team, then people are going to start talking about, oh, is this going to be Luka's league in five years? And is this going to be like the European powerhouses in Giannis, who's 26, and Luka, who's like 20, carrying the mantle from LeBron James and just being that consistent team that battles every year. So I think he does have a, a chance. Um, I almost put him as a dark horse, but I think after the season that he had last season, it's not really a dark horse situation. Yeah, you, you can't call him a dark horse. At yeah. this point, people know his talent. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of Steph, yeah, I think with Clay out, he's going to have to capture that uh, 50, 40, 90 season from 2015, 2016 in order to have the Warriors in contention. And if he does that again, he could look at his third MVP, especially he's put on some muscle mass in the offseason. He looks pretty stocky, he does like, look ready like to he's go. He's put on some size. Yeah, yeah he does. Um, and then I had three others that I mentioned. Uh, Giannis, I think he would have to carry the Bucks again significantly, but I don't see him winning a third time. Only three people won three MVPs back to back to back in history. It's Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, and Larry Bird last doing it in the 1984 to 1986 seasons. I just don't see Giannis doing that. I feel like if anybody should have done it recently, it should have been LeBron when Rose won. But again, just because of Rose's narrative, his storyline, he won even though LeBron arguably had a better statistical season. So don't really see him doing that. I think the pundits and the, the media end up getting tired of voting for the same guy three times. Um, I think LeBron, speaking of him, he could win it. Uh, he would take another accolade from Michael Jordan by becoming mm. the oldest MVP at age 36. Uh, MJ won it when he was 35 last. So it seems like he could, if he puts up that sort of ageless season like he has the last couple of years, especially after coming off of a NBA championship run. Uh, and lastly, I think Kawhi has a possibility of winning his first MVP if two things happen. And Paul George has to take one of those two routes. Either Paul George has to be an atrocity of a teammate next season and Kawhi needs to win, or Paul George needs to elevate his game to what he should be doing as Paul George and show that Kawhi is uplifting him as a teammate. Uh, without those two, if Paul George is kind of like doing okay and in this like uh, – like limbo of mediocrity, then I don't think Kawhi wins and I don't think that team wins. But if Paul George goes one of those two routes and Kawhi does carry the team, then I think Kawhi could be looking at his first. In terms of my dark horses, I have two. First one's Damian Lillard. Second one is Devin Booker. For mm, Dame... That's really nice. Yeah. For Dame... The question I have is how far will he carry the Trailblazers to promote them from pretender to contender? And also how much more can he do? He averaged the most points per game in his career last year, 30. Eight assists per game, but also the most minutes at 37 and a half. And he's also chucking up 10 plus threes per game. So you're asking this guy to just shoot from deep and just throwing up prayer shots and is making them pretty consistently to get 30 a game. So does he need to average 35 a game? Does he need to average 40 a game? Like what can he do to make them a contender? So from a storyline perspective, if he is carrying that team so much and they end up do trading CJ McCollum, like I think they might, then I could see him becoming an MVP and leading them the way Kobe did his idol uh, in earlier seasons with the Lakers. Second one. I love that pick. I love that. It's really good. Yeah. And the second one uh, with Devin Booker, this one I think is a factor of Chris Paul. Will he elevate book status to MVP level? You've seen what Chris Paul has done for other point guards careers with 
Shai Gregorius Alexander. He went from 10.8 to 19 points once joining with CP3. And with Schroeder, Schroeder arguably had a great season last year backing up Chris Paul. So Chris Paul clearly has a way with guards and specifically with teammates. Like what have Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan done since leaving the Clippers? Absolutely nothing. So Chris Paul elevates those guys around him. Also, you have to think about this. From a continuity perspective, Devin Booker through 2019 had 54 different teammates and four different head coaches. He finally, finally has a head coach who has been there year over year, finally has a general manager with James Jones who's been there year over year, and finally has a look of a locker room that with the addition of Chris Paul, it makes things better, but Aiton stayed, Saric stayed, other people on that team have stayed. So from Book's perspective, yes, he got paid max money. Yes, he's getting paid a lot. But you need to have consistency in a locker room, at least with some of your star players, in order for you to do well as a team, to have that chemistry. And so I think with having some more of that continuity, having a mentor like Chris Paul, Booker could be elevated to MVP level, especially if Paul goes down for a stretch of it and they still continue to win like the Suns should going next year. So those are my two dark horses. It's happened every every season for the last three seasons. Yeah. But um, I agree with that pick a lot. I think another dark horse for similar reasons could be Trey Young, just because I know that he's going to have the statistical requirements to get it done. We can probably assume that he is going to be upwards of 28 points a game, somewhere around 10 assists a game. Not too different from last season. If he could just reproduce something similar to last year, he'll be in the running for MVP just based on his individual stats. But I think the main thing is going to be, I think that his team is going to be slated for a big turnaround in terms of their team record. I thought that them and the Suns would have the biggest team turnarounds in terms of win-loss margin. And I think that if the Suns or um, if the Hawks can put it together and have a strong turnaround and be a top three seed in the East, and Trey Young is averaging 30 and 10, I think at that point, he's somebody that you might have to consider for MVP as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we talked a lot about the Hawks in the first couple episodes, and they're going to be an explosive team coming out the gate. So Trey Young definitely has a chance to average a double-double with assists and with uh, points. He also has a chance to be the scoring leader, similar to Luka. So it'll be interesting to see their battle uh, given their history of being the third and fifth pick and having the Hawks and, and Mavs trade for both of them. So uh, I agree with you. I think those three guards will have a great chance of being the dark horses for MVP. Um, in terms of front runner for defensive player of the year, uh, my two that I found uh, were AD and Kawhi. I think AD, simply put, he was robbed last year of the award. He averaged half a steal more than Giannis and over a full block more than him. And he accomplished this while committing fewer fouls, about half a foul fewer per game. So I think for him, he's going to come in even more motivated to win that award. And I didn't include him in my dark horse for MVP because I think until LeBron leaves, AD won't win an MVP in LA. But I think for Defensive Player of the Year, he was robbed last year. He's going to come in wanting that now that he's won a championship. And I think LeBron is one of those players that when you win sometimes or advance in life, you become complacent in achieving that next thing. And I think LeBron does the complete opposite and runs toward that next award and that next thing that he needs to achieve. I think AD is learning from that. And so after winning a championship fresh off of that, LeBron is probably like, now you go win a defensive player of the year, show them why you're the best defensive player in the NBA. So I think for, for him, uh, he's going to want to get after that for Kawhi. Uh, he's my other front runner. And for Kawhi, he posted his best plus minus per 100 possessions since 2015 at 11.8. But most of that was driven offensively. Kawhi has just become a better offensive player. He's become more of the game plan uh, since his earlier years. But I think next year with the team meshing better and having Surge back with him, I think he'll recapture some of his claw-like tendencies on defense and get his defensive rating under 100, which he hasn't done 
since leaving the Spurs. So for Kawhi, he's going to have to be better defensively. Paul George, one of the best defensive players in the league, is going to have to be better defensively. That whole unit is just going to have to switch better and play more as a team rather than individual ball. So I think for him, uh, in order for that team to advance and be where they need to be, he'll need to be better on defense and not just be an offensive threat. So I see him as having the potential to be defensive player of the year if he gets uh, back to where he used to be. Yeah, I agree with those picks. I thought they were pretty good picks. The only thing is, I think that um, last year, the whole controversy with Anthony Davis not winning it over Giannis, this is one of those conversations that comes down to our stats at the end all be all. I agree with you, Anthony Davis did statistically appear to have the slight edge, but I think the other thing that it comes down to is Giannis's impact on being able to defend every area of the court was more impactful than Anthony Davis's dominant of, or dominance of the paint. You have Anthony Davis primarily camping out in the paint, making sure that a zone is completely shut down. And he does a great job of doing that. But you have a guy in Giannis who's asked to not only lock down the paint, but also switch out consistently onto the perimeter and guard the best perimeter player too. There's not a whole lot of situations where Anthony Davis is asked to guard the best perimeter player on the other team. That's not usually something he's asked of, luckily for him, and he doesn't like to do it. He usually relies on just being the funnel inside, and, and he does a great job of that. But um, I think that the defensive player of the year should be somebody that affects the game in a way that you can't just feel him in one phase. I feel like Anthony Davis's interior domination, and I feel like a guy like Giannis is someone who can make his defensive impact felt all over the court, which brings me to my pick for who I think might win that defensive player of the year. I'm going to go ahead and give it to Bam Adebayo. I really do believe that Bam Adebayo is still, even after the season that he had and the performances that he had in the postseason, an extremely underrated player. He's only 23 years old. There was only two players in the NBA last year that were able to average at least 15 points, 10 rebounds, five assists, 1.3 blocks, and 1.1 steals. The 1.3 blocks and 1.1 steals for a player in the paint, only Giannis Antetokounmpo was able to do that. So I think that we're going to see Bam Adebayo continue to improve. And he has incentives too. He has a $163 million contract that could potentially go up to the $195 million Supermax if he can win Defensive Player of the Year. And we know that Bam Adebayo's motivation has never been lacking. So I think that he makes his impact felt all over the court. You saw what he did in the playoffs. He shows you what his defense can do to affect winning. I think that his impact is felt on the perimeter. It's felt inside. It's felt in transition where he's clogging up passing lanes. I think that next year is Bam's year to win Defensive Player of the Year, or if not, at least make it to first-team all-defense. Yeah, that's actually my dark horse for Defensive Player of the Year is Bam. Uh, I don't think he's been somebody who's been talked about as frequently as having that chance, but I think he does win it if he does two things. I think if he gets above two blocks per game, last year he was at 1.3 blocks, I think he needs to get above that two-block threshold. You've seen a lot of recent winners. Dwight, when he won it three years, was averaging two blocks a game. Um, and other players over the course of their career have won it when they make, especially at that position, that sort of impact on the ball. And I think his defensive rating needs to be under 100 next year. He hasn't gotten it there. Last year, Giannis was, I think, at a 96 or a 97 for a defensive rating. So I think he needs to bring his to that level to be considered uh, an elite defender. His last couple of years, it's hovered around the 105 mark. So he still has a lot of work to do to bring it under there and to make the Heat team uh, elite on defense, which they showed sign of, signs of last year. Right. I agree. The thing, too, to consider, though, is I know that traditionally, I mean, I've watched basketball for a while now, and traditionally, you're all right. The defensive player of the year has almost always been a big man that has averaged two blocks a game, something like that. That's always been the mold. But I think the thing is we have to judge Bam through a different lens because of the way he's changing the perception of what it is to be a defensive big man. 
before a defensive big man was basically what Anthony Davis is today, a guy who is a giant towering behemoth who clogs the paint. He makes sure that anyone going in there to try to get easy layups, they're not going to get those layups. Basically a towering shot blocker, paint protector, intimidator. Bam Adebayo may have had a lower defensive net rating than Anthony Davis and Giannis last season, but that's also because of those three players, he's the one that is asked the most to guard perimeter players. Although Bam Adebayo plays the center position, he's not always guarding the center because the defense of the Heat dictates that they switch everything almost all the time. So, And that's what makes their defense so good, the fact that you can't attack any one guy to try to get an advantage because they try to switch everything. They don't allow you to get two-on-one advantages. They switch everything. And they can do that because Bam has the ability to go out on the perimeter and defend your point guard, defend your shooting guard. Obviously, you're going to give up some more points if you're going to have people make threes on you and pull up on you. And obviously, a lot of times the people scoring the most points and taking the most shots are guards. You don't have as many shot attempts to defend either if you're Giannis or Anthony Davis because you're only defending those shots that are inside the paint. Not so much and or uh, not so much Antetokounmpo. He does go out into the perimeter the same way that Bam does. But out of those three guys, Bam is the one tasked the most with going out into the perimeter. So I do understand why his numbers may be a little bit skewed from that perspective. Yeah, I think for Bam, the thing that actually might help him win Defensive Player of the Year is showing out more on offense. I think he will bring his point per game up above 20 next year. I think it was around 16 last year. And if he gets his rebounds up as well uh, to uh, double digits, I think it was around eight last year. That He got should... his 10. He averaged, oh, he got he his averaged 10? 16 okay. and 10. Okay. So I think if he keeps it there for rebounds, brings his point total up. And also he's become one of the best passing big men in the league. I so, think he'll get seven assists a game. Yeah. So if he's averaging those numbers and then making the defensive impact like he will and likely become an all-star again, those are going to be the things that get the writers mm-hmm. and get the voters talking right, about him. It's going to get him talking about him. Right. Because mm-hmm. I think the thing with him is it's just the same as with the MVP. Like, it's always about are you getting the exposure? Are you getting people to talk about your storyline? Honestly, there's still a bunch of people who don't know who Bam is. He's not a household name by any means. But I really do think that you could put Bam down next season for 2010 and 7 with probably, I'm going to go ahead and put him down for. 1.5 blocks, 1 to 1.5 steals, 50% shooting from the field. You look at those numbers on a stat line like that on a winning team, that guy's an all-star. You're going to talk about him. And I think that that's going to give him the exposure that he needs to potentially get that trophy. And you know if he's even close to being in the running, that Jimmy Butler at every post-game interview is going to be. Oh, you know it. He's going to be. Bam, bam for defensive player of the year. Bam oh, yeah, for defensive player of the year. All right, so in terms of the most improved player, who do you have as front runner for that? So this, this is a big if for me because this depends on what his role is going to be next season. And it's not really under his control, of course, but I think that going off of what we were just saying about Bam and the Heat's success, I think if the Heat want to have the best outcome for next season, not necessarily right away out of the gate, but if they want to finish in the best position they can be and set themselves up the best for their future, they will start Tyler Hero at point guard. I think that if Tyler Hero starts at point guard, he will definitely win most improved player for sure. Because the guy last season was only averaging 13 points a game. He honestly didn't have a stat line last season that would wow anybody. All of his production and all his big wow moments and the reason why everybody knows him now came in the playoffs. So if he can replicate the kind of performance that he had in the playoffs where he was averaging close to 20 points a game, 40% from three, just about averaging about five assists a game and also five rebounds, if he goes from scoring 13 points a game to 25 and five, which, I mean, that that obviously is a little bit of a stretch for a second-year player. He is only... 21, but it's possible, especially if they start. And he did do it against the best competition in the playoffs. If he does that and it goes from 13 points a game to 25 and five, he wins that award. And I think that the Heat would do very wise to put him at point guard because 
you're going to maximize his greatest strengths, which are his ball handling ability, which we saw he's, he's a natural creator. That's something that you can't really teach. You can try to teach somebody how to make the right read all you want, but there are going to be times when that play can't be executed because the play broke down. The guy wasn't in the right position. The shot clock is winding down. Now you got to improvise. What do you do? There are guys who have a natural ability in a situation like that to pull something out of nowhere and make it happen. And you can, when the guys that can do that, they show that they can do it early in their career. That's not something that intuition doesn't come later. It's something that you either have it or you don't, and he's got it. And the one thing that he doesn't have is his defense because you're, you're asking him a lot of times to defend shooting guards and guys who are much bigger than him. But if you put him at point, you help to reduce some of his greatest weaknesses because it's not like he's small. If you played point guard, then he'd have actually plus size at six foot five. So if you put him at point guard, you have him defending the other team's point guard. He's quick enough that he can stay in front of another team's point guard where he lacks his strength and size. I think the Heat would have the best outcome if they put him as their starting point guard, and he would definitely win the most improved player if they did. That's an interesting pick, and I I think the Heat will need to put him at point guard. I actually have, though, Hero for another one of the awards later. Uh, so my front runners for most improved player are Oladipo and Wall. Both are coming off of injury plague seasons, and I think for both of those teams, for the Rockets and for the Pacers, if uh, in Wall's case, he comes back and shows that he was the player that he was before, which is going to be very tough. But after not touching a court for two seasons, uh, Houston's going to need him to perform well to be able to be a contender, especially if James Harden gets traded and it becomes Wall's team all of a sudden. Wall has all of the pieces to make a strong, most improved player uh, case. If he gets the, even if he gets eighth seed with a Brooklyn Nets or Philadelphia 76ers cast of characters and nobody really else on the team that is an all-star, maybe in the Christian Wood potential, he's exposing that. I think Wall has a chance to be the most improved player. For Oladipo, if the Pacers do go back to the playoffs, if he is that star again, he could recapture the same award that he won in the 2017-2018 season, which has never been done before. I don't really know if you want to have the most improved player twice. Uh, however, he could win that again. For my dark horses, I only had one. And the reason why I put him as a dark horse is because I just don't think he's going to improve. But after a lackluster season last year, Aaron Gordon could capture the award if he gets the magic into the playoffs. Again, reason why I'm giving him the dark horse is I don't see him improving next year. He's one of the most overpaid players in the league, in my opinion, and he's seen his numbers decline in nearly every category in the last two seasons. So I'm not sure if this is a product of the coaching environment or having subpar teammates, but you expect more out of the guy who's supposed to be the star or the leader of the team uh, and really has just done nothing to really get the team to contender status. Yeah, Eric, I got to say, man, I honestly don't think that any of the guys you picked have a shot in hell. I get it. <laughs> like, I really don't think they have a shot in hell. I think that Aaron Gordon, Aaron Gordon has not only not improved, he has literally regressed over the last couple of years. It already seems like his best years are behind him. And it almost seems like to him, the only accolade that he really cares about is the slam dunk contest. And he can't win that one either. So he's just, he's not going to win anything ever. That's, that's his career. An amazingly athletic player who had tantalizing upside that never panned out. And there's lots of guys like that. He's going to be another one in that mold. I think that. Yeah, they're Blake Griffin. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, even Blake Griffin had more success than this guy. At least Blake Griffin made some all-star teams and made the playoffs. This guy literally never did anything. But um, John Wall and Oladipo, I really don't think they have a chance either, not because I don't think that they're going to have impacts. I just think that based on the definition of the most improved player, they always want to give it to a guy that has never been at that level before. Whereas John Wall and Victor Oladipo, you've seen what they could be. And I think it's going to be the kind of thing where You've seen John Wall at his peak. You've seen Oladipo at his peak. When these guys play next season, 
I'm realistically certain that they're not going to be their peak season. So you know that whatever they give you, even if it's good, it's not going to be as good as what you've maybe seen them give you before. So there's going to be that to kind of diminish whatever they do. It's going to be a nice, pleasant surprise, but it's not going to be quite as good as what they've done before. Kind of a la Derrick Rose. I mean, Derrick Rose came back and he had some nice performances after his major injuries, but he was never MVP Rose again. So it kind of does put a little bit of a damper when you compare it to past performances. And I think that those things are going to hold them back. And I think that Oladipo actually probably is going to have a rough year because he wants out and his teammates know that he wants out and his coach knows that he wants out and they apparently tried to trade him and he knows it and it didn't work out because right now Oladipo has no value because he's got a, a big contract and no one knows what he's got because he hasn't played. He's been hurt. And when he did come back to play, he didn't play well. So no one's obviously going to give up assets for him. And obviously the Pacers don't want to give him up for free. So right now you're in this weird situation of a movable guy. They were without him for a while and had to figure it out without him. They have a game plan now with other players that they've signed that they're going to execute with or without him. I don't think that they're going to run the ball through him the way that they did before and make him the focal point. I think that he's going to have to now figure out his role with that team, which is always hard to do. So I honestly don't know that he's going to have a great year. Yeah, fair points. So in terms of six man, uh, my front runners, I think similar to the last couple of years, it's going to be a battle of LA again. I think Lou Will and Montrez Harrell, they duked it out for the title last two seasons. Uh, each of them won over the last two seasons. Lou Will just seems like the perennial six man and Montrez Harrell. I think they are going to have him running with the second unit. And if he does bring his stats up again, like he did last year to be above 20 points a game. I think he was at 18.6 last season and about seven rebounds. So if he averages a double-double, he could be six-man of the year again. But I like my dark horses for this. My first one is George Hill. If he stays at OKC, he'll have a chance to win that award, similar to what Schroeder's role was with the team. Hill did finish with the Bucks last year at fourth in six-man of the year, and Schroeder finished, I think, second last year for six-man of the year. And people forget to realize Hill led the league last year in three-point percentage at 46%. So if the team overperforms again, like they did last year, which I don't think they will, but if they overperform again, Hill will be instrumental in that. But my other pick is who you picked for most improved player, and I think he could win both awards, Tyler Hero. I'd love to see him run as point guard, but I do think he should start off his second unit and close out games, similar to what he did in the finals. Because if you give him that opportunity to be the spark off the bench, but then still have him be the closer and have him mean mug the camera like he did in the finals. And if he shows out and averages 22 plus a game, I think you said 25 a game, while also bringing up those abysmally low assist numbers from 2.2 up to maybe a five, six assists a game, especially on a heat team that averaged, I think the second most amount of threes in the league behind the Rockets last year he has a chance to be the sixth man. So I, I think Tyler Hero has a chance to win most improved player, also has a chance to win sixth man of the year. Uh, and I, could, I would love to see him running as a second unit point guard and then potentially in his third year when Drogic will likely be out because the Heat will probably sign a Bradley Beal or a Giannis. Um, I, I'd love to see him be that second unit or the second unit PG going in next year. So out of curiosity, before I tell you um, my picks, now that we're on the topic of it, since we, we both basically agree that Tyler Hero has the potential to win the most improved player, and I think that he has the potential to also win the sixth man if he starts off the bench, which I don't think he should. But if he did start off the bench, like you, like you think he should, who would you start at point guard if you're the Heat, if you're looking at that roster? Because realistically speaking, they didn't have Dragic starting last year because he is a much older point guard and he has a bit of an injury concern right now after having that plantar fascia tear in the playoffs. I don't even know if he'll be ready to start, even if they wanted to start him. I don't know that his health would let him right now. So you have to assume he's going to come off the bench. Who would you start at point guard? I think you start the person that they started most of last year in Kendrick Nunn, who finished second in rookie uh, voting last year. 
for rookie of the year. I think that Kendrick Nunn lost some of his stock from a trade perspective in the finals and in the playoffs because they didn't play him much. And if they do want to get a Bradley Beal and want to trade for him midseason, Kendrick Nunn will likely be part of that package. I don't think they're going to get rid of any of the Kentucky players and Hero and Bam. So I think in order to bring up his stock, you're going to have to show, hey, this guy can be a starting point guard in the league. He's still prolific on the offensive side. Hey, he got better at defense this year. Look at what he's doing defensively with his switches. So I think they're going to start Kendrick Nunn. And if not, they'll start Goran Dragic. I know the injury concern is there. But again, similar to the Kendrick Nunn argument, if they do plan on trading Dragic, if they do plan on trading Nunn, they're going to want to show that those guys still are starter caliber players in the league. Dragic is going to have an expiring deal with a team-friendly option. Nunn is going to have a team-friendly deal with being a rookie. So I think for both of those guys, they're going to want to show, hey, these guys are starting caliber players. But for Hero, I like him coming off the bench because I do think that the second unit does need a spark. And I do think that the second unit needs to have that sort of tenacity that Jimmy Butler brings to the table and brings to the floor. And you're obviously not going to put Bam there, who I think is the only other third player on the team that gives them that sort of spark. So for Hero, love to see him come off the bench, love to see him be that juice off the bench. Um, and, and really just elevate the team while Jimmy Butler, Bam, and other players get some rest. Right. I think um, I think ultimately the Heat are probably going to start Kendrick Nunn, even though I wish they wouldn't. I just really do think that, yes, initially, it may be nice to have him coming off the bench, but I think that for the long-term success of this team, I mean, Jimmy Butler, he is 31. Like, you want to win right now. You need to reach the top level that this gear or the top gear that this team can go as soon as you can get there. And I think that putting it off is only going to stave off his development. I think that if you know that his long-term future is going to be to be at starting point guard, you would benefit from letting him get experience doing that right now early in the season when you can afford to take some lumps. And then by the time that you get to the playoffs, you'll be primed to have a run where your point guard has already run the show and has experience doing it, and you can run your best lineup. If you look at the Heat's team in the playoffs, the lineups when Hero was in were the best offensively. And Kendrick Nunn, realistically long-term, is probably not going to be a starter. I think that if the Heat do keep Kendrick Nunn long-term, he's going to slide into that six-man role that Dragic is in right now. And I think that if Dragic starts off the bench, they have plenty of juice because we saw it in the playoffs and throughout the year that whenever Dragic would come in off the bench, he brought that veteran leadership and that juice, as you were saying, off the bench. So I think that they won't be lacking that if Hero starts. I think that if they're going to reach their top gear, they need to put players in position to accommodate and master what their future role is going to be on this team. I don't think Dragic is going anywhere. He's got a one-plus-one-year deal. It's a pretty big deal. I don't think anyone's going to trade any valuable assets for him. And... I guess, like you said, I don't think any of the Kentucky players are going anywhere. So it seems like this team, a lot of the players that are here are going to be there. They have to start trying to maximize what the future roles of those players are going to be right now so they can see if they're going to be a fit long-term or not. Because right now you're trying to maximize that championship window you've got. Jimmy Butler is only going to be prime Jimmy Butler for maybe another year or two. And after that, you're going to have to wait around until you reach the peak of BAM or hope that BAM is already at his peak by then. So I think that they'd be best to start. But for my pick of sixth man of the year, I think I'm going to have to go with Dennis Schroeder. I, I agree with your pick. The only thing that I'm hesitant about him is Dennis Schroeder has come out and said that he wants to start. Um, but that doesn't mean he's going to start. I mean, he, he may want to start. Who else would you start at point guard for them? Uh, for the Lakers? Yeah. I honestly would run the same lineup that they did in the playoffs where it was LeBron at point guard. That was what they had the most success with. And it also seemed like LeBron enjoyed it because I think LeBron at this point in his career, I watch him play and he doesn't seem like he necessarily cares to be the leading scorer. Not that he's ever really cared to be the leading scorer, but he cares even less now. If he only gets 20 points a game, I think he doesn't care. I think that what he cares is that he gets to the playoffs healthy. I think that he doesn't care that much about the regular season accolades. He's got plenty of those. I think that he just wants to get to the playoffs with plenty of gas and juice so that when he wants to turn it on, he can. Because realistically, 
as as well as he may be playing today for a 35-year-old man, he doesn't have the kind of stamina where he could realistically play 35-plus minutes every game during the regular season, average 28-plus points a game, and still have the gas to go in the playoffs. I don't think that's going to happen. So I think he's totally fine with being the distributor, being the facilitator, and just spreading the ball around. And he showed that he was comfortable in that role. So I think they would just probably stick with LeBron at point. But um, if they end up having Schroeder off the bench, I think he, he probably is the strongest case to win the sixth man. I think he's going to have the biggest impact of any free agent signing off the bench, probably. So I yeah. think that I'd have to give it to him. Yeah, I, I think with LeBron, going back to him for a minute, um, he, I do think, cares about the accolades a bit in terms of stats. And I agree with you that he probably wants to run point guard more because point guard for him is going to be less taxing on his body, to your point. And he's not going to need to drive to the lane every time. He's one of the most prolific passers in history. But also, even if he played an average mediocre for LeBron numbers points-wise for the next two seasons, he'd almost have the scoring title. Three seasons, he definitely has a scoring title. With assists, he is eighth on the league in the league. And he's at uh, 9,346, whereas John Stockton's at 15,806. I don't know that he can get all the way up there, but – he can definitely I don't know about that a, one. He'd have to play a while. He can definitely make a dent into the Steve Nash 10,335 uh, category. So I foresee him, similar to you, trying to play more point, trying to average those double-double numbers like he did last year with assists 10-plus. And I could see him telling Schroeder, hey, don't care that you want to start, man. You're going to win a championship. So sit down on that bench, learn from me, and then – in you three can, you years. can start in a couple of years and I'm done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When I go join Bronny in New York, because New York is still the worst team in the league, and Bronny goes to New York, then I'll uh, I'll let you run point for the Lakers. I think I think LeBron James would rather lock his child at home than let him sign with the Knicks. I don't think that he would let it happen. I think he'd tell him to go play overseas for a year. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, so last one for frontrunner coach of the year. Who do you have? Ooh, coach of the year. Um, to be honest with you, I guess I'm going to have to probably go. Let me see. I guess I'd either pick Monty Williams or I'd pick Lloyd of the Hawks. Because I think that those two teams are going to have the two individual biggest season turnarounds. I think they're going to have a great narrative. I don't think you're going to give the coach of the year next year to a guy that was already a storyline last year. Because, again, they always love to switch it up. I think that this year you're going to have Monty Williams be someone that could potentially be the coach of the year. So... I agree with you on the Monty Williams pick. I think it could be a great pick, especially with if Devin Booker, like I talked about earlier, is a frontrunner candidate for MVP. Part of that is going to be because of Monty Williams. Um, I think, though, I disagree with you in the storyline component. I think after finishing fourth in the voting last year, Eric Spolstra, if he leads the team to a top three finish next year in the East, wins his first. Coach of the Year Award, which I is hope crazy so. to think. That would be fair. Which is crazy to think that it'd be his first. But if some of the other right. pieces that we were talking about earlier, if Bam wins or gets second in Defensive Player of the Year, if Tyler Hero wins one or both of the Six Man of the Year and uh, Most Improved Player Awards, if Jimmy Butler makes his way into the top five of the MVP awards, if the Heat are the second or third team in the East, or maybe win the first seed, who knows if they do really well in the regular season, then all of those factors, people are going to look and be like, hey, after having pretty abysmal teams a couple years ago and Spolstra still leading them to relevance, uh, we finally recognize him as a great coach that he is, especially I think after Pop, he's the second most tenured coach on a team. So not to mention, or, I think that you can make the case that he does more with less than anybody else in the league. Not 100%. only was Eric Spolstra the guy who was able to turn this team into a contender last year, but he did it with 
basically his hands tied behind his back. We didn't, I mean, we didn't see Eric Spolster get a single lottery pick since Dwayne Wade left. There's, there has not been a single top 10 pick that the Heat have had that has panned out. Well, not, not, except for Justice Winslow, who got traded away, there wasn't a single top 10 pick the Heat have made. So I think that to be able to get cornerstones that can develop into future building blocks for your team in the late teens, having very limited picks, having terribly bloated contracts. We saw what they had with the Whiteside situation, the James Johnson contract. They had a ton of uh, the Dion Waiters contract. There were so many contracts that made it impossible for them to sign a free agent, made it impossible for them to get a top pick. It was honestly, it seemed like they had no way out. And out of nowhere, they're able to get an all-star like Jimmy Butler because they have one of the greatest front offices in the NBA. They're able to get maximum development of the picks they do make. They're able to develop a game plan that maximizes their players' strengths. And I think all that is because you have Eric Spolster running the show who gives that team a stabilizing presence. And I think that when you go to the Miami Heat, you know that Eric Spolstra is going to get the most out of you as a player. So I think that it's a shame that he hasn't won one to this point. Yeah, I agree. And my dark horse is one of the people that you picked, Lloyd Pierce. This is a volatile situation because in one of the initial episodes, predicted he could be on the hot seat if he underperforms. But if he overperforms, he could be coach of the year. So that's the right. swing it's in one the margin of those boomer that he bust. has. Yeah, right. that's the margin that he has. Uh, if he gets the team to a fifth seat or higher, he'll be in the running for coach of the year. If he is 13th or 14th in the East after getting all the firepower, and if there's no injuries to that team, then he's going to be on the hot seat. So uh, It's he's, funny because you don't usually see this boomer bust dynamic with coaches. You usually see this boomer bust thing with like draft picks where you'll say, wow, this player could be supremely talented, perhaps, but also he can maybe be terrible. Like you see that yeah. in the draft all the time, but you don't see coaches that you're like, maybe could win coach of the year, maybe could get fired. Hmm. I mean, but that's, that is the reality of the situation. He has big expectations to win and he's got it set up where he should. So he's got to meet those expectations at this point. Now it's put up or shut up time. Yeah, I agree. Well, those are all of our predictions for going into next season. I think it'll be fun to look back at this at the halfway as well as the complete standpoint from the season and see if we were right on any or all of these. But regardless, still a great episode. So appreciate we gotta it. We got to make a tally. Got to make a tally? Yeah. Definitely we'll, got to make a tally. There's got to be some kind of stakes on the result of this. You know how we like to compete out here. All right. Well, we'll figure out what that is and talk about it potentially in the next episode. So. With Court of Opinion, I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Thank you for tuning in.